we began First Peter last week with an introduction, and it's kind of an introduction part two here with verses one and two. And excited to to get into this book here. We'll look in verses three and following next week here. But I shared last week here. If you notice in the West, a shift of increased hostility to Christianity and a culture that used to be able to kind of plan on a certain status and ability to share Christian ideas and freedoms. If you notice the shift in that, then then you're not alone. And truths that were generally agreed on have been now moved to the margins. And you may have felt more at home in the culture, but now you might feel more like an outsider, an exile. There might have been many privileges that you enjoyed because of your faith, but now you might be seen as just one belief among many. Uh, you may have noticed in the past the opportunities to have uh, a greater influence, control over society, uh, particularly through politics, etc. But you may have noticed that power uh, significantly weakened. You may have noticed that it was easier to maintain a certain status quo here, but find that harder and har- harder. And you may have seen a culture that is more like Babylon and Rome than it is in Mayberry and wonder, well, how do we live now? And... That's what we looked at last week. If you're wondering how to live in Babylon and Rome when you used to live in a neighborhood like Mayberry, and God wrote a letter to you, and this letter here lays out how to thrive in Rome. How does Jesus build His church when the church is not in a prominent place of a visible, observable power in society? And this letter gives the answer to those questions here. And in fact, Jesus' church is built and designed to thrive, not in affluence in society, but honestly, when it is persecuted and when it is beat down. And we said we're not at the point like our dear brothers and sisters in Iran and in China and at the extreme end here of North Korea, but we can see it in the distance. We can see in the distance. We can see that the tides have shifted. The sands are changed here. And the question is, will we be prepared? And the only way to be prepared is to be begin preparing right now. And I don't say these kinds of things to make us all fearful and start biting our fingernails, but to put us in the Word of God and build us up in our faith. Peter here lays out how to navigate being not of the world, but being sent into the world, just like the Son of God Himself and the commissioned apostles were, and we ourselves are. So, we're in... Uh, the first letter of Peter. We're going to spend the fall in that and the, and the, and the uh, portion of the winter here. And uh, we looked in verse 1 last time and uh, Peter here is writing this uh, and it's near the end of his life. He's walked with Jesus for a while now. He has been uh, 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 a influential in a, in a network of churches here. And he introduces them there in the beginning here. Uh, Pontius, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And we said right at the beginning here that this letter is not representing good advice, but it is, re- it is a binding apostolic word for the church. Oh, these, these places that he's writing to, these churches of people scattered abroad, who he calls strangers or sojourners, were in what's modern day Eastern Turkey and northern Syria and Azerbaijan and Georgia and Armenia and Iran and Iraq where that comes together here. And the order that the, he lists them are probably the order in which a courier would deliver this letter to these churches and strengthen them and build them up. 
And so we want you to hear this and not pass over this truth that this is authoritative. This is not irrelevant for only the people who written to it around 80, 60 or so. But it's authoritative for King Jesus' church here as we're in 2020. And it's not good advice that we can filter and say, well, that doesn't apply and, and chop apart here. But this is the, as the Word of God, inspired Word of God, this is the binding apostolic Word for us on how to thrive in Babylon when we're between two worlds. Peter here says, I'm Apostle Jesus Christ. He's the authorized representative of the King. He was first introduced to Jesus when Jesus said, come and follow me. Remember that. And he put down his nets and he followed Jesus. There's a lot that's happened in between there. And so this is the authoritative word for the church as we saw last week. And he, and he, and he introduces them, he writes to them as strangers or, or temporary residents, foreigners, exiles here uh, who are in these areas scattered abroad. And they needed to believe, they needed to have a mind shift. They need to understand their identity. And he describes them as strangers here with a word that describes their relationship to God and then their relationship to the world that they're sent into. He uses that word twice. He uses it also in chapter 2. 11. And it's the idea of sojourners. They're living alongside the world's citizens. There, as Paul says in Philippians 1, they are, are, are citizens of the heavenly kingdom who are living here in this world as well. They have a king. They are representatives of Jesus here as ambassadors here. And Jesus values at their core to be different. What they live for is to be different. What they base their life on is to be different. They are to be holy and set apart as He that has called them is holy. And we saw that last week. So they are to be distinct from the values of Babylon. But secondly, they are also to navigate Babylon in a compelling way. They are to be representatives of the King. They're not to withdraw and isolate themselves. Uh, they, they may be on the edges. and They may not have the same uh, privileges that the world citizens enjoy because they're ruled by a different prince than our king. But they're exiles. They're refugees. They're scattered abroad. They're not going to find refuge here. They're gonna be, there's going to be hostility. This is going to be expected. Because their king, our king, is unseen. He's, he's been rejected. Our temples are not made of hands. Our priests are all of us. The sacrifice has been once and for all. And they are to live as missionaries. We saw a major backdrop. Peter here is what he understood in Jeremiah chapter 29. Or as the Jewish people were in Babylon. They're told by the prophet Jeremiah... God's message through Jeremiah. They're told to seek the peace of the city, to pray for it. To have families, to raise them, to be distinct from the values here. To not listen to the false prophets here. And to see the opportunities where they were placed as opportunities to show forth the praise of Him who would call them from darkness to light. That's the background in Jeremiah 29. And you can think about people who God called out of Babylon's who God called out to be distinct and yet engage with their uh, civilizations. You can think of Abraham, called out from Ur, right? But called out to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You can think of Joseph, sold into slavery in Egypt, but yet he rises to the top and engages in that particular government there in Egypt. The servant girl in Syria to Naaman. Daniel is a wonderful example of this. And the reason 
Peter writes this letter is at the end of the letter, he says in 5, 10, and 11, to stand in the true grace of God. To be committed to blessing others, even the hostile unbelievers, because of our eternal home, we can set ourselves aside to serve the needs of others. This isn't all there is. And so that's the motivation, that's the reason we can set ourselves aside. Because whatever may happen to us as we live for God's glory and live for His agenda and give our lives away, persecution, suffering, and ungratefulness toward our efforts, that's not the final say. It's not a catastrophe. And Jesus actually doesn't have us running into the hills and hiding, but seeing, but serving the good of others here in this earthly city here and not revenge. And so the point of the book is live as a sojourner. Don't get so attached to the core values of the world. Be separate as God's separate. Be invested in though, in blessing and engaging and serving uh, the Babylonians as God's Word through you to bring Babylonians into His kingdom. And so, He's called them scattered people. And really, this is where we're going in verse 2 today here. They're strangers. They are transients. They're temporary reticents. They're travelers headed for their native land. And these terms really give us the key to Peter's whole letter. He's writing a travel guide for pilgrims. He reminds them their hope is anchored in the motherland, the homeland. They are to endure this alienation as strangers, but they have a heavenly citizenship and destiny, and they're to engage while they're here and represent their king well. And why can they do this? Because Jesus is the way. He has overcome the world. And he's going and he's gone to prepare a place for them in his father's house. And we are people of the way. That's what the disciples were first called in, in the book of Acts. People of the way. We're following Jesus in the pilgrimage here of our lives. And so Peter here recognized that these Christians to whom he's writing him aren't just passing through in a night here in this world, right? We've been here a while. We've been here months. We've been here years, decades, right? But they are to be ready to live among the pagans for months and years. Where, where Peter is concerned about the way they live as resident aliens, about their witness among them. And he doesn't call them to flee from the world. He doesn't call them to go run and hide in the desert. Rather, he writes to the scattered Christians as a community together. This is how you navigate here. And so through the power of the Spirit, their lives are to be more radically different. And so Peter is dedicating this ink here that he has spilled to show the motivation, what motivates us, and the pattern, what does it look like, of this new lifestyle in Jesus' new covenant here as pilgrims. If you've read 1 Peter or listened to 1 Peter, you sense maybe, well, this doesn't... I don't know that this exactly describes the way things are and how I'm living today. You might not be able to articulate exactly uh, the, the same things that you see going on in Peter's day and are near what you see in our culture here, but you might have this sense of estrangement, this sense of detachment. You might feel lost in this world. I don't want to tell you that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The moral standards, how the world spends its, its time and its money, uh, the the incivility that exists in our culture right now, right? With opposing viewpoints. 
uh, where technology seems to be taking us. Politics and war. A world driven by selfishness and greed. I hope you say, I don't fit in that. (laughs) I hope those things aren't comfortable to you. I hope that's not seeping into your life. But knowing that God has planned for us to be strangers in the world, and He addresses us directly in that position of being foreigners can be very helpful, to say the least. That's my understatement here of the day here. And perhaps you're wondering, as you see the way culture is gone and the way things are, are going, you're wondering perhaps, is this really worth it? Should I just throw up my hands or wring my hands? Is this really worth it? And Peter says, yes it is. But before I take you there, I want to remind you who you are. And so here's what he says in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Perhaps you notice right away in verse 2. He names... Without using the word, he names the most difficult doctrine in the Bible to understand. No, not election. The Trinity. The Trinity. Some have said, um, try, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you'll lose your soul, right? The Trinity. And what he wants you to understand is that the deep truth of who God is and the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit that have existed for all eternity and have never been broken, that life, that life is very practical. And your identity as a sojourner needs to be rooted in the truth that you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean? That your identity is in the Father, Son, and Spirit. That all the members of the Trinity have been serving, overflowing in love for our salvation to bring us to this point. And that's what he's writing here. And the first point is there on the screen. Though we are in Babylon, we are clasped tightly in the hands of our wise, eternal Father. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All kinds of ink's been spilled on what this means. People trying to figure this out. The word elect means chosen. The word foreknowledge there means to know beforehand. It's used here and it's used in Acts 2 verse 23 in Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost. And I'll just read the verse where he uses this. And it's used later on in the passage. And that's the only time this particular Greek word is used in the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter preaching Christ says, Him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He uses a form of that word uh, later on here in verse... Lost my place here. Later on, he uses it in the book of 1 Peter. 20, thank you. Verse 20. Christ is a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I can't tell you everything that election means. I can tell you this, that whatever it means here, 
elect according to the foreknowledge of God, it's something very special. And it's something that Peter put in the Scriptures there to ensure and build up and encourage the believers there in Asia Minor. It's a very special thing. I don't know how God's election and man's responsibility necessarily intertwine. I'm not sure of that. I like how Warren Wiersbe quoted Harry Ironside. He was a Canadian pastor. He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago. And he, and he gives the illustration of, of, of a believer coming to the gates of heaven and above the gate it reads, Whosoever will, let him come. And as he walks through the gate, he sees on the other side, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what Peter wants us to understand is that it's no accident. He didn't stumble on this. There's purpose here. As they're going through the things they're experiencing, God is purposely loving them. You think of Abraham as he was called out from Ur out of all the nations to be a blessing to the others. And then think of the audience who would be reading this mix of Jews and Gentiles here. And nothing would probably be more astonishing that Peter would call, including these Gentiles, chosen by God the Father. Israel was God's chosen people here. How could Gentiles be God's chosen, His elect? Well, the answer is resolved in Christ. Look in chapter 2 and verse 4. To whom coming as to a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Peter is writing how Christ has lived in the world as an outcast. He is rejected by the world. He is the one in chapter 1 and verse 20 uh, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It was manifested in the last time for you, but to the world he is rejected. He was chosen by God. He lived as an exile, rejected. And then he can tell them, You too, readers, because you're in Christ, you're feeling this rejection. You're being rejected as well. You're in Christ. You're suffering for doing good. Chapter 2 and verse 21. For even here too were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. You in chapter 4 and verse 19 experience this this, the, 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 this this stress here. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as to a faithful Creator. They were rejected because they were in Christ, suffering for doing good. But they are stones that have been joined to the Chosen One. And so they can share in Christ's afflictions and trust themselves to the Father who judges righteously. Chapter 2 and 23 and chapter 1, 20 and 21. So if you're like me, you see this world and it seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket, right? And you might say, why am I here? I don't fit in. And now you need to say, step back and say, why don't I fit in? But you need to see what this Scripture is telling you here. That you're way ahead in the eternity count. That you have an eternal citizenship that supersedes this world and the hardships. And that it is no accident that you are here for such a time as this. You and I might wish we could go to different times. Go live in a different day, right? But you are here. You have been called out. And it is hard. But God didn't call us to an easy path, did He? 
So what we're doing here in 2019, approaching 2020, is no accident here. God's plan for you is to be right here, right now, called out to be an ambassador right now in the times you are living in. And we can't rebel against that. And we can't wring our hands about, about that. And when we understand this, that God has purpose here through His, through His, uh, through this, through his, uh, that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through our faith in Jesus Christ, then we, that gives us purpose, it gives us ammunition here to resist the norms and culture of the society that we live in. It doesn't mean we're awesome. It means God has purpose here. God has shared His love and grace with us. And He wants us to share that love and grace with others. And so that means that even when we're rejected by those around us, we can know that God has purpose and has poured out His love on us to see more of His family built. So though we're in Babylon, we're clasped in the loving hands of an infinitely wise, ancient of days, from eternity to eternity, loving Father. That's power to be a sojourner right there. But that's not all, is it? That's not all. Look what else he says. He says in verse 2, through sanctification of the Spirit to obedience and strengthening of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so secondly, though we are in Babylon... We have been free to serve Christ by the life-changing work of our Holy Spirit. Look what he says in chapter 1 and verse 12. To whom it was revealed, the Old Testament prophets, that not to themselves, but to us, they would administered the things which are now reported to you by them that have preached the Gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Look what he says in verse 14 and 16. As obedient children, not fashioning or conforming yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as He which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, what also happened in your salvation is the Holy Spirit applied that salvation. He applied the work of Jesus Christ, the shed blood on the cross. He took us out of our old master. He he took the chains off of us as we sung today. He took us out of our old master into our new relationship with our new king so that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. He's the one who applies salvation. The Holy Spirit is a tireless worker. Remember in creation, as, uh, as, the, as, the, as the world is, is being created, it speaks about the Spirit of God descended upon the earth. Uh, and and, and the, the, the picture in the Hebrew is actually like a, like a chick sitting on her eggs, brooding. He brought life to it. That's what the Holy Spirit has done. He's called us out. That word sanctification is to separate from and separate to. That's what God has done in our salvation. We're separated from sin. We're separated from the condemnation. We're separated from what we justly deserve. We're separated from the world and we're separated to God. We have a relationship with the Father. Sometimes we could hear the separated from and miss the separated to. But that's why He does it to bring us to God through Jesus Christ's work. And so though we're in Babylon, though we're sojourners, we have been free to serve Christ 
by the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. Notice what He separated us to. To obedience to Jesus Christ. To obedience, we have a new Master. It's not a drudgery to serve Him. We have one who bought us at great cost. And so Paul can say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, I exhort you, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Present your bodies to be used for God. He'll say in Romans 6, our members, our bodies are to be used as instruments of righteousness now. We've been set apart for this. But thirdly, notice that third part of it there in verse 2. To obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Though we're in Babylon, we are washed and purchased by the precious blood of our Messiah. That Greek word that's used for sprinkled appears one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24 where the writer of Hebrews says this. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You see, Abel's blood in Genesis chapter 4 condemned, didn't it? It cried out from the ground, Cain, you are guilty, right? Jesus' blood cries out, you are pardoned. And the Holy Spirit brings us, applies the blood of Christ. We are washed and purchased by the precious blood of our Messiah as we put our trust in what Jesus has done and not of what we have done. And so 1 Peter and Hebrews here, they're they're referring to something that happened back in Israel's history in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And here's what happened. There's a scene at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. Israel has exited from Egypt. God's brought them to Mount Sinai and God is going to make a covenant with them. And that mountain is shaking at the presence of the Lord. And the people were told to assemble together into covenant with God. And they made an altar with 12 pillars representing the tribes here. And they offered a sacrifice. And half of the blood, buckets of it I'm assuming, was poured on the altar. The other half, uh, Moses takes to the container and he sprinkles the people with it. The rest of it saying, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And at Sinai, God makes His covenant with the people of Israel. And, and, and they're the people of God. They're joined to Him in His covenant. And do you know what they say? God says, this is what I'll do. If you do this. And they say, all believers will say, we'll do this, Lord. We'll fulfill our part of the bargain. And they failed miserably, didn't, didn't they? Now Peter here is speaking of people who have become obedient to Christ through the new covenant in His blood. We're not sprinkled with the blood of oxen or lambs, but with the blood of Christ. And that altar that was sprinkled with the the blood uh, in Moses' day, we're not sprinkled on that altar. The altar is in heaven. It's the very throne of God. And Christ, death, once and for all, satisfied God's justice and made atonement for our sins. And the blood of Christ sprinkled on us. God sees you all dashed and poured over with the blood of Christ if you are in Christ. And the reason that is a wonderful thing is because it means God accepts us because of the penalty that's been paid for our sins. And it also means later on, if you read First Peter, He's got claim on you. 
He's bought you. He's purchased you. You're not your own. You're not bought with silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, 2.18 and 19. Now think about this. Who's writing this? Peter, right? Peter. Peter, the guy who had once urged Jesus not to go to his death on the cross. That's ludicrous, he says. That's ridiculous. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter now is on the other side of that, right? And what does he understand? What was necessary. The death of Christ was necessary. And the meaning of Christ's resurrection, that living hope. Jesus bearing, chapter 2.24, bearing our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, Peter says. And Christ, Peter says, He is the one, He's the reality that was foreshadowed at Sinai. Israel didn't keep their promise. Peter says in Acts 15, the yoke of the law was one that neither we nor our fathers had been able to bear. But Peter here can rejoice in the new covenant that God cleanses the hearts of Jew and Gentile by faith in the sacrifice of the Christ. Of Christ, It had come at last. And so you have Father, Son, and Spirit involved in our salvation. Why? To help them thrive in Babylon. To know what things... Though circumstances might change, though their status of living might change, though their address might change, this never changes. This never changes. It can never be taken away, as Nick read this morning. It cannot be separated from you. And so you have these three members of the one true God here involved. And you could picture it like, like, like uh, people involved in building a house here. When you build a house, right, Clint? <laughs> You've got those who are the architect, right? The general contractor, they're planning the whole thing. And then there's those who are building the house, the workers, the builders. And then there are those who make it possible for you to move into the house, the realtor and your, uh, your loan officer, etc., right? So we have God, the, the Father, the planner. We have Jesus who's done the work. He has accomplished the work of salvation. We have the Holy Spirit who applies it, the, the one who gets us into the house here. Peter said, this is important for you to know as a sojourner. This is an anchor truth for you. Oh, and it's not enough. He's got to get even more explicit about it and excited about it in verses 3-12. through 12, Where we'll look next week. But he wants his readers to understand in this letter, and us by extension here as we read it, we have purpose in Babylon. We have been brought, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you've received the gift of, of God in Christ. And reconciled to Him. You have been brought into a right relationship to a rightful King who will one day return and conquer. And you have now, right now, a power to live in Babylon, washed in His blood, forever brought into the life of God in the Trinity. You know what that gives? That gives purpose for washing dishes. That gives purpose for changing diapers. For changing tires, for making sales, for fixing leaks, for visiting neighbors, for standing in a checkout line, for riding the school bus, for taking Algebra 2, for ordering takeout. That gives purpose for your car shopping, your clothes shopping, your grieving, your rejoicing, your building, your eating, your sleeping, your driving. You're exercising, you're crying, you're laughing, you're disciplining, 
and even shoveling snow, right? That gives purpose, doesn't it? That gives purpose. That's not all. Look how he closes this greeting. This is one of the deeper greetings in the whole New Testament. Butters. Look what he says. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's not a trite thing. That's not like saying, Hi, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? These are truths that come out of what he said in chapter 2. And what he wants us to understand is, though we are in Babylon, we have been given everything we need to thrive in Babylon and find peace. Notice that word. He doesn't just say grace and peace to you. He says grace and peace be multiplied. We are given and are continually being given what we need. There's no way to do this without. Right? And this little brief greeting, grace and peace be yours, uh, be multiplied, uh, and abundance is the idea here. It gives in miniature the whole message of the letter. He's writing to those who have already felt the scorn and malice of the unbelieving world. He's writing for Rome under the Emperor Nero where things have just started and it's actually going to get a whole lot worse with Nero. Can he really pronounce peace and multiplication to those who are only beginning to suffer this calling here? Yes, that's why he's writing, right? Now, think about Peter. Do you remember in the garden when Jesus was arrested? He had fought with a sword to defend the peace of Messiah as he defined it. He drew his sword to resist those who came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, put back your sword, Peter. Let's put it back. And he puts the ear on the back on the person of the... By the way, Peter wasn't swinging for the ear. Peter wanted to fight. Why? Because he feared that the death of Christ would be defeat. The end of victory, right? That all hope would be lost if they took his rabbi. What had the death of Jesus done? It had done the opposite. It had accomplished the salvation that was necessary. And Peter, this apostle of the risen Lord, can pronounce peace, a peace that comes not by the sword, but peace that comes by the cross and the empty tomb. And his letter expands on that here. Look at the end in chapter 5. He says in verse 12, By Sylvanius, a faithful brother to you, as I suppose I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. And so does Marcus, my son. He's saying this is an accident. God's got this going all over the empire, right? But he wants them to understand that what they have received is not to be stagnant. You know what happens when you become a stagnant Christian? You become a cranky Christian. Become very critical. You stink, right? It's like manure. When it's all piled up, someone said, it stinks real bad. When you spread it out, it's wonderful fertilizer. Right? He wants grace and peace to be multiplied, to flow. He wants multiplication. He wants to see this grace and peace shown as all right in their marriages with spouses who have an unbelieving husband, 
with people who are on trial and in trial, with people who have been wrongly accused, with the love of the brethren together, with the world. And so he wants to see God's grace multiplied and peace multiplied, and this extended to people who are fellow citizens together with them, love the brotherhood, he'll say later on, and also those who aren't yet. In other words, he wants them to be poured out, to pour out, he wants them to understand they've been poured on to pour out for others as an offering. And this is no accident. This is not God just turned his head for a minute and look what's going on with the world. No, you're here for this. You're here for this. Every second of your life now has meaning. You have been set apart to represent the king in Babylon. You're an active missionary in Babylon. And you might be tempted to be just like the values of Babylon. And as those, the seed that was set, scattered in the parable of the sower, the, the cares of this world choked them out and, and they quit. But these truths grow deep roots in the truths about God and His purposes for you. So that you're planted like a tree by the waters. You're built up uh, like a house on the rock when the storm comes. So you're not passive. So you're not just, well, I can't do anything about it. The way things are going. But you are advancing God's work. You're building up this church. So that the things that Jesus was anointed for by the Spirit now extend to you and His people. Remember what Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. What if Jesus had set back in his rejection? What if he had said, this is too hard? But he depended on the power of the Spirit and God gave multiple grace and peace. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover your sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So live in faith, not fear. And that's where this letter is taking us. It's going to build us up if we let the Holy Spirit do so. It's going to do great things. But we must be yielded. It's going to take us through hard times. But it's going to give us truths that are going to be like steel in our backbones. And it's going to help us be faithful to Jesus Christ. And not live in fear. Perhaps you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is crazy stuff to you. I want to tell you, it is crazy. It's what the world calls foolishness. But to God, it's the wisdom of God. It's the power that comes from being in Christ, and Christ in you. And if you're here this morning, you don't know our living hope, then God's invitation to you is to repent and believe. To turn from the ways you think, the ways that you're following, and to turn to Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for you. Let's close in prayer. Nick will sing one more verse, and I'll close with a benediction. Lord, we thank You for what Your Word accomplishes. The wisdom and love of our Father will never let us go. Holy Spirit, who has accomplished what we can't accomplish in our own hearts, who set us apart, given us purpose. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed over us, has brought us into a new and better living way, a new covenant. And now grace and peace, that's to multiply and not sit still and bottled up. 
And we pray that you would use your word in our lives as it's applied to us. And that we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.